this morning is from 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own fancies and will turn away from listening to the church, to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, friends, I have some good news, some great news about our friend Ben Creelan. Now, for those of you that don't know Ben Creelan, he was a pastoral intern here twice, so he's like a younger, shorter, much better looking version of me. And so Ben, last Saturday, the 24th, one week ago, he sat for his ordination examination, and as we would all expect of him, he passed with flying colors. So Ben is now being officially ordained to gospel ministry, and there will be an ordination service in June to celebrate and to formally commission him. Now, I don't believe that Ben is watching this, but Ben, on the off chance that you're watching this, we want to let you know. I want to let you know I'm proud of you. We want to let you know we're proud of you. And you always have a church family here in Camden. You're always welcome to visit any time. Just know that when you do, you're going to preach. And friends, if I was given the opportunity to be there in June at his ordination service, without a doubt, without a doubt, the passage that I would speak to him, that I would speak over him at his ordination service, is the passage that Karen just read for us. Because Paul's charge to Timothy would be my charge to Ben. Here again, verse 2. Verse 2, I charge you, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Friends, this is Paul's charge to Timothy. This is the charge to Ben Creelan. This is the charge to Adam Colstrom. This is the charge to every Christian. Preach the word. The culture may cancel you. The crowd may condemn you. The world may judge you. But preach the word. And Paul writes, to, he writes, Timothy, Ben, Adam, Chestnut Street, be ready to do it in season and out of season. Now, because of uh, grocery stores today and our modern shipping advances, we don't understand things being out of season, do we? You know, there was a time when there were certain foods that it, you couldn't get easily because they simply weren't in season where you were. And procuring something that was out of season 
if it was possible at all, was incredibly difficult and very costly. And so Paul says to Timothy, whether it's easy and plentiful or whether it's difficult and costly for you, Timothy, be ready to preach the word. Do not be caught unprepared, but always be ready, whether it's easy or difficult. Preach the word. And friends, in the same way that the call is to preach the word in season and out of season, it also reminds us of the seasonability of the word itself. Paul's also saying, Timothy, hey, whether the word is in season or out of season, whether the word is common and desirable in your time, or whether the word is scarce and unwanted, you preach the word. Because church, the word will not always be in season with this culture. There have been times in the history of this nation and the history of other nations when revivals have broken out and the word has been in season. It was sought out, it was respected, it was desired, it was abundant. But far more often, as it is in our day, the word is not in season. The word is not sought out, it's not respected, it's not desired, it's not abundant. So Paul says to Timothy and he says to us, hey listen, whatever the condition of the one who preaches, and whatever the condition of those that are listening to the one who preaches, be ready, in season and out of season, and preach the word. And notice that the list that Paul gives in verse 2, he says the word reproves, rebukes, and exhorts. Well, that's what we saw the word did last week when we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Like 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And as we discussed last week, those words reprove, rebuke, exhort, correct, teach. Well, those are authority words. Those are authority words. You must have authority in order to reprove or rebuke or exhort or correct or teach. And because the word of God has such authority, Paul says, Timothy, preach the word. But you see, the problem is that we chafe against any authority except for our own. We chafe against other people or, or anything telling us what to do. So rather than being shaped by the word into God's image, we would rather shape the word of God into our own image. And that's what Paul says is going to happen in verses 3 and 4. He says, A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, Paul here, says here that people won't endure sound teaching anymore, and the word that he uses, sound teaching, literally means healthy. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 5, verse 31. It says, Jesus answered them, those who are well, who are sound, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So the opposite of sound is sick. So Paul says people won't endure healthy, sound teaching. Their teaching is going to become sick, diseased, unhealthy, unsound. And what is healthy, sound teaching? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, Paul warns us of anyone who teaches a different doctrine 
and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So, so sound doctrine, he says right here, are the words of Jesus and what accords with godliness, reflecting the very character and truth of God himself. Sound doctrine is in accord with the word of God. And earlier in Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul listed some things that do not conform to sound, healthy doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul writes, and he, he writes about the lawless and the disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound, healthy, true doctrine. Paul says these things, things like this, they're contrary to sound doctrine. They're evidence of sickness, not of soundness. These things do not conform to the words and the character of Jesus Christ. So you, Timothy, preach the word. And a sound proclamation of the word is so important because as he says in verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Why? Because we have itching ears and we're going to accumulate for ourselves teachers to suit our own passions. I mean, you've probably heard the, the phrase because it's, it's talked about in media nowadays, the idea of being in an echo chamber, of being in an echo chamber or, or confirmation bias. You see, it's the idea that in real life or on social media, what do we do? We, we surround ourselves with voices that echo back to us what we want to hear. We, we, we surround ourselves with voices that confirm our biases and our beliefs. We, we listen only to words that affirm our desires. You see, every one of us seeks out voices that will scratch us exactly where we itch. And we avoid the voices that would tell us otherwise. And this isn't a new problem. This, this didn't come along when Facebook came along. This has been a problem for a long time because we've done this from the beginning. In fact, there's a really funny episode in the life of King Ahab, the king of Israel, that's played out in the scriptures, I think, for comedic effect. You see, King Jehoshaphat of Judah has agreed to go to battle with King Ahab of Israel. But before they go, Jehoshaphat says, hey, let's first inquire of the Lord and see if this is a good idea. And it plays out in 1 Kings chapter 22. It says, And Jehoshaphat said to Ahab, the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. And he said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said, Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Gosh, I love that. I hate him. It sounds like he's having a temper tantrum. He never says anything good about me. Ahab had put himself in an echo chamber. He surrounded himself with 400 prophets who confirmed all of his biases and told him exactly what he wanted to hear. 
These 400 scratched him exactly as he wanted to itch. But when Jehoshaphat annoyingly asks, well, is there a prophet of the Lord that we could consult? What's he say? Well, yeah, there is somebody, but I hate him. He never says anything good. I don't want to listen to him. He doesn't tell me what my itching ears want to hear. He doesn't affirm what I want. Whether or not it's true, he doesn't make me feel good. I hate his word because it says my desires are not all good. And friends, Paul warns you and he warns me against doing the same thing today. Having itching ears, we accumulate teachers to suit our own passions. We are likely to gather false prophets who tell us exactly what we want to hear, who scratch us exactly as we want to itch, who affirm that our every desire is good and wholesome, all while we hold at arm's length, far from our hearing, the true word of God, because God's word might rebuke my choices. God's word might try to correct my actions. God's word might challenge my desires. So again, as Paul says in verse 3, we accumulate teachers to suit our own passions, to suit our own desires. In other words, we are in danger of deciding that our passions, our desires are more authoritative than the Word of God. We are in danger of deciding that our desires are the higher authority than God's Word. And what Paul is discussing here today is ultimately a question of authority. Friend, who will be the authority in your life? Your desires or the word of God? Because we live in a culture right now that is promoting the idea that desire is authoritative. That desire is destiny. That desires tell you who you are. And not to be allowed to follow and embrace all of your desires is to do violence to yourself. Thus, anyone who would say anything that any desire is wrong, that person's obviously a hater, an oppressor, phobic, old-fashioned, out of season, on the wrong side of history. And that person and their word should really be canceled and silenced. Our culture has already settled the debate. Desire is king. And having itching ears, they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit and to validate every one of those desires. And church, it's a dangerous, dangerous road to go down. Because here's the question. Can our desires tell us who we should be? Can my desires reliably serve as a moral authority. You know, some of you might have read that last month in April, there is right now a New Yorker who wants to marry their own adult offspring, their child, and is suing to overturn laws barring incestuous practice in New York. The petitioner is calling it a matter of individual autonomy. The person claims it would humanity if they're unable to tie the knot with the child that they conceived. And if our desire is the authority, if our desire is our destiny, and if to deny desires is repressive and oppressive, then it truly would do violence against this person and diminish their humanity to deny their desire to marry their own child. Can our desires reliably serve as moral authorities for who we should be or what we should do? 
In January of 2013, the LA Times ran an article titled, Many Researchers Are Taking a Different View of Pedophilia. The article saying many experts view pedophilia as a sexual orientation, as immutable as heterosexuality. And the debate persists today. So can our desires truly tell us who we should be? Are they moral authorities that can justify and guide our actions? I mean, if alcoholism, which is long believed to have a genetic component, if desire, disposition, and genetics can authoritatively tell us who we should be, then what justification do we have to counsel a genetically predisposed alcoholic to deny his or her desires? If I, as a healthy, heterosexual man, find myself lusting after women other than my wife, are my desires actually telling me I'm polyamorous? And if I fail to fulfill that desire, am I doing some kind of violence to my true self? Can any sexual desire be authoritative, telling me what I should be or should do? I mean, if an anorexic looks at her body and says, I sincerely believe my body is wrong and I desire my body to be different, thinner, and then she starves herself, should we interfere? Is her desire, her feeling, authoritative? How about an adolescent boy who says, I sincerely believe my body is wrong, I desire my body to be different, female. Is his desire authoritative, even though the vast majority of children who identify as transgender as a child, identify with their birth gender by the time they're adults? Friends, our desires might tell us something about who we currently are or how we currently feel, but do they have the authority to tell us who we should be and what we should do? Are our desires authoritative? The culture has said yes. The culture says desire is destiny. Desire is authority. But friends, the Bible says no. The very first of the Ten Commandments that God gave to his people in Exodus 20, verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other God, no other love, no other desire, no other authority before or above the authority of God. You shall have no other gods before me. But today we're surrounded by prophets, so-called experts, politicians, celebrities, calling us to now worship at the altar of desire. Because your desire is a God. To be acknowledged, to be obeyed, to be worshipped. Desires the authority and denial of your desire is heresy. And contradicting or challenging any desire is blasphemy. We're surrounded by a new religion. We worship desire, and we're surrounded by prophets and ideological priests telling us exactly what our itching ears and our aching desires want to hear. Our desire has become for us a God, and obedience to our desires is a religion. And any who would deny this new orthodoxy are infidels, and they need to be silenced. It's exactly what Paul warned would happen in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths are stories that give life's, life meaning. They're, they're a worldview. They frame and they explain our existence and our purpose. They have a religious dimension. And the world has wandered off to worship the God of desire, saying that your desires alone can give you meaning. 
Your desire alone can give you identity. Your desire alone can give you purpose of what you should do. And into the malaise, Paul says to Timothy, no. Timothy, preach the word. Church, preach the word. And we need to be warned that not only is the larger culture turned away from listening to truth and wandered into myths, segments of the church have accumulated for themselves teachers to scratch them where they itch and suit and affirm their own desires. You've heard me and you've probably heard other trusted teachers talk about progressive Christianity. It's the rewriting of important and essential Christian doctrines in order to make Christianity fit well with the desires of contemporary Western culture. Instead of saying that our desires should be conformed to the authority of the word, this movement says scripture needs to be conformed to fit the desires of the culture. And friends, because our, des- of our, desire, because our desires are the authority, progressive Christianity tends to be pretty selective over exactly which passages in the Bible are authoritative in their lives. There's a predetermined outcome. And they intentionally approach and interpret the scripture to fit their outcome, to fit and conform to the desires of the culture. But that's not how the word's supposed to function. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 teaches us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. However, instead of letting the word of God be the surgeon and do the cutting, as it says it should, progressive Christianity is doing the cutting and pasting, picking and choosing until the Bible's claims trouble me no more, until the Bible sounds exactly like I do, until the Bible affirms exactly what I want, and until the Bible seems to scratch me exactly where I itch and suit all of my desires. But Paul says, Timothy, don't do that. Preach the word. Preach the word. You shall have no other gods before me. As everyone around you wanders off into myths, as so-called Bible teachers become just bad parodies and puppets of this culture, as our wayward desires are paraded in the streets and promoted on media and propagated by politicians, professors, and prophets, you, Timothy, preach the word. Because remember, Timothy, remember this church. It is Jesus Christ who is the authority. For it is Jesus Christ who alone is the authority. That's actually how Paul started his charge. Did you hear that? In verse 1, in verse 1, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Paul reminds Timothy and us, he says, there's only one judge. There's only one authority. Friends, this culture may judge you right now on the wrong side of history, but Paul says Jesus Christ alone is going to judge all of history. Your friends in this culture may judge you now, but ultimately every one of us is going to be judged by Jesus Christ. So what Jesus Christ thinks is eternally more important than what the crowd or the culture thinks of you today. And church, the culture may love you now if you scratch them where they itch and tell them what they want to hear, but just like their power to cancel you, Their approval and acceptance of you is also only temporary. Whereas Jesus' approval and acceptance is eternal. Who are you going to play to? 
to what audience are you going to play? Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. He brings an eternal kingdom. His power will never fade. His love will never end. His acceptance is eternal. His authority is unfading and unfailing. So Timothy, so Ben, so Adam, so Chestnut Street, preach the word. Preach the word. And friends, do you see what Paul's doing in these verses? This is his last hurrah. Paul is passing the baton to Timothy. And it's the only baton that Paul has to pass to Timothy is the only baton that I have to pass to Ben. It's the only baton I have to pass to you. The only baton we have to pass is the unadulterated word of God. It's as we heard Paul charge Timothy in chapter 1, verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul says, I faithfully and unashamedly pass the unadulterated word of God, the gospel to you, Timothy. Now you guard that good deposit and then preach the word. Preach the word to others. Paul's passing the baton because he says, listen, Timothy, my race is coming to an end. I see the finish line. It's right there. It's not that far. My race is ending, but Timothy, you've got to take the baton and keep running with it. Verse 6, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Paul says, listen, my life has been poured out as a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of service, preserving and protecting and faithfully handing off this baton. The finish line is not far ahead. So Timothy, take the baton and keep running. Preach the word. Being so close to the end of the race, Paul looks back on his race and he looks forward to the end. He looks back in verse 7. He says, I ran faithfully. I fought the good fight. I suffered for the gospel unashamed. I'm finishing the race faithfully holding on to the unadulterated and authoritative word of God just as it was delivered to me. And because I ran faithfully, he looks back and he can now look forward and says in verse 8, there's a crown, there's a reward, there's a prize for all who run faithfully. So Timothy, so Ben, so Adam, so Chestnut Street, take the baton and faithfully preach the word. I would charge Ben and I charge you, my brothers and my sisters here, preach the word because this is the defining issue of our day. Will God's word be our authority or will the desires of our hearts and our bodies be our authority? In Paul's words, will we as people in the church be sick or will we be sound? Will we be conformed to God's word or conform God's word to our desires? Church, this is a foundational issue. If we get the word of God wrong, then we will get the gospel, the good news wrong. And without the gospel, we have no hope. And if we have no hope, if his church has no hope, then this world has no hope. For he has left us in this world to bring the gospel to them. And if we drop the baton, what hope is there for them? Church, preach the word. For in the word of God, we find that our desires cannot and never will bring us salvation because our desires are corrupted and our hearts are deceitful. 
sin has twisted and marred all the good that God has created us to be. Sin has marred all the beauty that is supposed to be. And Scripture reveals the state of our hearts and our desires in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So friends, following our hearts and the desires of our hearts cannot bring us salvation. It will not bring us peace because our hearts and our desires are twisted and deceitful and sin-sick. But friends, the gospel, the word of God also declares that in his great love for us, Christ has come to forgive our sins, to heal our sickness, and to make us and all things sound once again. Just this morning, I woke up and I was reading in the scriptures, and I, I was in Ezekiel 36, providentially. The Lord brought me to Ezekiel 36, and verses 25 through 27 contain a promise. The Lord says through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart, and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you, and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. God promises not to bless or conform to our old corrupted hearts and desires. By his grace, he promises to cleanse us, to give us new hearts and new desires, and to submit our hearts to the authority of his word. Friends, the gospel, the good news is that Christ has come not to affirm our desires, but to transform them. And that is what the table that we're about to come to reminds us of. Friends, it's a table of grace that forgives and a table of grace that transforms. It is grace that freely welcomes the repentant sinner no matter his or her sins, and it's grace that lovingly refuses to affirm any sinner in his or her sins, but forgives them and frees them from those sins and desires. The table that we're about to come to together proclaims the good news revealed in the word of God. So church of Jesus Christ, come now and participate in this table so that at the end of the service you might go forth and that you might proclaim his word. Because the baton has been put into my hand and into yours. Chestnut Street Baptist, preach the word. Let's pray together. Father, may we be faithful. Faithful to preach the word. May we cling to your word and stand upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. Unmoving and unyielding. Firm and secure. No matter how the times change, no matter what we must weather and endure, we stand on Christ, on his word, on his unchanging grace. Now as we come to your table, feed us, Lord. Strengthen us and transform us by that grace that we might be conformed to you and to your word for your name's sake and for your glory.
Amen.